lesson comes from Genesis chapter 9, beginning at the 8th verse. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and all the living creatures that are with you, all the birds, the livestock, all the beasts of the earth, As many as came out of the ark, it is for all the beasts of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again, never again will all flesh be cut off by the waters of the floods. Never again will the flood waters destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant between me and you and all living creatures for all generations. I have set my bow in the cloud. It is a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And when I bring the clouds on the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember the covenant which I make between me and you and all flesh. Never again will the waters become as a flood to destroy all flesh. When I see the bow in the cloud, I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and every creature on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and you and every living creature on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I long to be a man at rest. I long to be a man at rest, a person at rest. Now, I'm not talking about needing a rest, a momentary rest. I'm not saying I need to sleep or I need a vacation. What I mean when I say I want to be a man of rest, a man at rest, a person at rest, is that deep within my core that I have an experience of this consistent place of being at rest, settled. Instead, if I'm honest, often I'm weary I long to be a man of rest, and yet often I'm weary. It's like the little uh, first grader class where they're being asked to answer the question, what will I be like when I grow up? And one child in the first grade class is struggling with this, and so the teacher tries to help the student out and says, well, look at your mommy and daddy as examples. And the student goes, oh, okay, when I grow up, I'll be tired. But this weariness that I experience, and I know, I know, I know so many experience, this weariness is not a problem of a calendar. It's not a calendar issue. It's not just an issue of having too much on your plate. This weariness is a gospel issue. That at the core of our being, we have forgotten, I have forgotten who God is and the nature of his relationship with me. I need the gospel in the flood. You see, Noah 
as we've seen in this short series, which we end today, this gospel in the flood series, Noah actually is a man at rest. His name even means that. Back in chapter 5, when he's being named by his father Lamech, in verse 28, it says he called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us rest from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. That Noah actually is the Hebrew, has the same Hebrew root as the word nuach, which means rest. Noah, at his very core, is to be a man at rest before himself, before the world, before his God. I mean, look at Noah as these, he faces all these incredible obstacles and the challenges to be faithful. Nowhere in the record do we see him throwing a fit, complaining, arguing. We see a man who's able to faithfully obey and follow his God. And I'm going to argue that this is from what he experiences in his flood story. Noah himself experiences the gospel, the good news in the flood. And as he experiences that, what ultimately is happening is Noah is having his view of God, his view of his relationship with God shaped and formed, and that gives him rest. Noah can rest because he knows who God is and he knows the nature of his relationship with him. What no one knows is that at the core of his relationship with God, that this relationship is not passing away, it's not temporary, it's not conditional, it's covenantal. That's the money word in this text. Seven times in this text, beginning at verse 9, we hear the word covenant. I establish my covenant with you. It's the word for promise. It's the word for treaty. It's the word for a contract. We're familiar with the concept of covenant. And here's the covenant. Here's the promise that God makes with Noah and with all his covenant people. Listen to verse 11. Here is the promise. Post-flood, the promise in verse 11 is, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Effectively, here's what the covenant means. God is saying, to you, my covenant people, here's my promise. As bad as you may get, I will never destroy you. As bad as you may get, I will never destroy you. See, the difficulty with the Noah's Ark story is we so desperately, as I said at the beginning of the series, want to somehow sanitize it and make it, you know, a little easier to read. I don't want us to sanitize it. I don't want this story to be a story that you like. I want this story to be what it is meant to be, a picture of horrifying judgment and consequence of sin. This is our sin and the consequence of that sin on display. We are, we are deserving nothing less than absolute destruction because of our grievous wickedness. That's what the gospel of the flood begins with, but then it ends with this covenant that says, even so... Even as bad as you are, because you're going to screw it up again, Noah, don't worry. We know you'll mess it up. Even so, I will not destroy you. 
The covenant that Noah comes to understand with his God is that God will covenant with his people, will show mercy, will show love, will show sacrifice instead of what we deserve. That's the covenant. And that's the nature of the relationship. And it changes him. You see, as we look at this short text, we see three things about this covenant that will give us rest. They give Noah rest. And if we can hear them, they'll give us rest as well. You see, the first thing is the covenant is steadfast. See, when God makes covenant with us, he's making a steadfast covenant, a lasting covenant. But not only is it steadfast, this covenant that Noah receives and that we as his people are invited to receive is that the covenant is single-sided. See, it's not just steadfast, it's single-sided. It's not mutual. Spoiler alert, God is going to do all the work in this. But not only is it steadfast and single-sided, this covenant is signed for us in the skies. God gives us a visual reminder, a signature in the skies that we can always look on as we continue to get fearful and weary and begin to doubt that sign is yet still there to remind us of the nature of this covenant, our relationship with God. First, God's covenant is steadfast. Now, we're familiar with covenants and contracts and promises, but what's unique about this is God's covenant is steadfast. God is the promise keeper, the contract keeper, the covenant keeper. Listen to the nature of the language that's used in this covenant. You think of this term as a contract that God is writing. Listen to the language of the contract. How permanent, how secure, how steadfast it is. In verse 11 and verse 15, three times we get this phrase, never again will all flesh be cut off because of the floods. Never again. Not maybe, we'll see. There's no small print here or an asterisk. It is simply never again. And then it goes on in verse 12 to say, this is my covenant for all future generations, which basically means this, Noah, even if your sons are morons, and keep reading, they are, even if they're morons, my covenant still stands. My covenant is even with them. And it goes on and then in verse 16 to say it is an everlasting covenant. See, the covenant being described here is God saying this is permanent and this is steadfast and we live in a world of so much inconstancy, so many broken promises. What's unique about this covenant is that God and his character on the, are on the line. He is steadfast. As we pray with our girls, as they go to bed at night, we pray a version of Compline, which is the bedtime prayer from the prayer book. And it's, it's Beautiful to hear our kids at different ages as they grow up praying these prayers that knock me between the eyes if I'm paying attention, weary as I often am. This, this prayer that says, be present, O merciful Father, through the silent hours of this night so that we who are wearied by the changes and chances of this fleeting world may repose upon thy eternal changelessness. God does not change. 
God is steadfast and Noah knows it in this steadfast covenant. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. This is the nature of the covenant God has made with his people. But not only is it steadfast, it's single-sided. See, God's covenant is single-sided. In verse 9 and verse 11 and verse 17, we hear this language, I establish my covenant with you. I establish my covenant. The language is clearly that God is the one doing the work. God is the one doing the heavy lifting. This is not a mutual contract. This is not bilateral. This is unilateral. This is not me putting my draft proposal out and God putting his draft proposal out and then saying, well, let's combine these together and find some mutual exclusive contract. No, this is God saying, I'm about to do something in your life. I'm about to save you and rescue you and make a promise to you and you are simply going to stand back and be amazed at my goodness and my grace. See, the difficulty as we live in a world of so much inconstancy in our relationships, right? We, we don't see that we, these relationships often last because contracts break down, relationships break down because one side, one side breaks their terms of the contract. Uh, some of us saw this week that there was a wedding proposal on Jeopardy. Alex Trebek stood there as one contestant, asked a member of the audience, his girlfriend, to marry him right there on Jeopardy. And, and what, have been, what would have been amazing was if they'd played the think music before she answered. <laughs> do, 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 right? Ba-ba-da-ba-ba-ba-bum. What would have been hilarious about that is that we all would have stood watching amazed saying, this is a big decision. What's she about to do? Is she really weighing the size of this decision? See, every time we enter into a relationship, anytime we enter into a covenant, the question always is, this is a risk. Will that person be faithful? Will I be faithful? Will that person wreck everything? Will I wreck everything? There's so much on the line because it's a mutual contract normally. But this contract is single-sided. God is doing everything in this. And it's interesting, it's, it's not surprising in the ancient Near East because there is evidence archaeologically that these kind of treaties did exist. They're referred to in the ancient Near East as um, suzerain vassal treaties. And this idea of suzerains being the, the, the sort of lord, the, the king, the person with all the authority, and the vassal being the person who's weak and doesn't have much to offer. It's an imbalanced treaty. It's an imbalanced covenant. And they would enter into it, effectively, the suzerain, the, the king, the lord would say, all right, I'm going to give you everything. I'm going to give you provision, protection, everything you need. You can't give me much in return except loyalty, obedience, right? But clearly, it's a totally stacked contract. And as we look at the biblical story, we see something as profound, even more profound than this unevenly stacked contract. It's all stacked on God's side. The biblical theology we find in scripture is not that God does some and I do some. 
It's not God meets me halfway or God helps those who help themselves. No, Romans 5.8 says God demonstrates his love for us that while we were yet sinners, offering nothing, Christ died for us. God comes and does all, all the work, all the work to bring this about. It's totally imbalanced. It's like the little boys having uh, pancakes one morning and they're, they're fighting, they're brothers, and they're fighting at the table over who's going to get the first pancakes. This is not my story because I've got all girls. Um, but they're, they're these two boys who are fighting over pancakes. Girls never fight over pancakes. The, um, the boys are arguing, the mother says, well, I can solve this, boys. What would Jesus do if he was at the table? He would say, let my brother have the first pancakes. And one of the boys, without missing a beat, turns to his brother and says, okay, you be Jesus this morning. <laughs> but it's true, isn't it? Right? We, we see how God is doing so much for us, and yet we have nothing to respond with except for faith, loyalty, obedience. But what if that even doesn't work well for us? I mean, if in this covenant the only thing we're required to do is respond in faith and obedience and loyalty. What happens when my faith isn't strong? What happens with my wavering faith or my wavering obedience? Does it turn out, in fact, that this whole thing's been a ruse? That, in fact, it is a conditional covenant? That if I don't have enough faith, that God will wander from me? No. As 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13 says, if we are faithless, he is faithful because he can't deny himself. See, the picture of the gospel is even in our brokenness, even in our failures to follow, even in our failures to be faithful, even then he will keep covenant. And we know it not just because he's steadfast, not just because he's single-sided, but we know that even in our faithlessness, he keeps covenant because he has written it in the sky. He has signed it in the sky. The sign in the sky indicates, not just as a memory, where he says, you know, you'll look at the bow and you'll remember, I'll remember. But the sign actually points to the gospel literally. Here's what I mean. Verse 12. Verse 12 says, this is the sign of the covenant. Sign means token or mark or signature. But sign also indicates a symbol that signifies. In other words, you'll see something more in the sign itself. The sign indicates the nature of the covenant. And here's what the sign is. Verse 13, I have set my bow in the clouds. Now, we read that and say, the rainbow. And that is the sign of the covenant. But here's where we can miss the gospel in this story. There is no word in Hebrew for rainbow. We've made that up because, of course, obviously the rain is the means by which we can see the bow in the sky. But the bow, originally in the text, in the Hebrew, there is no word for rainbow. The word used in Genesis 9 for this covenant is that he has set his bow in the clouds. His bow, his hunting bow, his war 
bow, his weapon of war. The Lord has taken his weapon with which he brings his judgment and his wrath and his vengeance on a wicked world and he's taken that weapon and he's hung it up in the clouds. Now we don't like the idea of a God who judges, at least we often don't think we do, and yet we've seen in this series and we'll see again and again in the gospel that if God does not judge evil, If God doesn't look at the most awful things that people can do to one another in this world and does not judge it, he is not a good God and not worthy of our worship. And so how can it be? We look at Psalm chapter 7, for example. This is a psalm that I never think will get used on a flannel graph in Sunday school. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow, same word. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. This is the language of judgments. God will bring his righteous judgment on the earth. He's got his weapons of woe. He's got his bow and his fiery arrows. And here's the sign of the covenant. And we will not understand the gospel in this text unless we hear it. God says to Noah, remember the covenant? As bad as you may get, I will not destroy you. As bad as you may wreck yourselves and wreck things around you, if you are my people, I will not destroy you. Here, I'm going to hang up my bow. I'm hanging it. That's what it means to set up his bow in the cloud. He's hanging up his weapon. He's laying down his weapon, putting it up. But there's even more. Because you may say, well, how can he really hang up his weapon? Because, I mean, judgment still eventually has to come, right? I mean, evil continues. So what will he do if he's put down his bow? Well, setting up his bow isn't just that he set it down. Look how he set it down. And I get this from Charles Spurgeon. See, we see the gospel even in the shape of how he placed the bow. See, God can do anything he wanted when he set this sign in the sky, couldn't he? As Spurgeon says, you know, if he had set the bow like this, if he'd set up his bow in such a way that as he hung it up, it was facing down. Think of an ancient Near Eastern worldview, right? We're down here and God is up there. As Spurgeon says, if God had set his bow facing downwards... The worry that we would have been stuck with every time we looked at the sky and saw the bow form would say, one day, oh Lord, what if that arrow should fly? Because if it flies any minute, here it comes. It's faced right at us. But instead, Spurgeon says, do we not see the gospel even in the shape of creation? For as he has set up his bow, he's done it in such a way that the arrows are pointing upwards. That whenever that judgment arrow should fly, whenever that moment should come that God's judgment must be brought to bear on the world, it will fly those arrows not at us, but at himself. Do you see the gospel in the bow? It will fly at himself. You see, 2,000 years ago, Jesus who was prefigured by all of these stories in the Hebrew Bible. He gathered with his friends and he used the same language of covenants 
But this time he gave them a different sign. He said, this cup is the covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins for you and for many. He was identifying yet again, just like the Noahic covenant with the bow in the clouds. Now again, here is the covenant and the terms of the covenant are that when the wrath falls, it will fall on me, not on you. And what happened less than 24 hours later on a hill outside of Jerusalem, that man had the full weight of judgment come down on him. The arrow flew and it flew at God and it pierced his son instead of piercing the ones who deserved it. This is what it means that God has written his covenant in the sky. I have set my bow in the cloud. I long to be a man at rest. My weariness is not just an issue of calendar with too many things going on. My issue is a gospel issue. My weariness emerges and your weariness emerges as we forget the nature of our relationship with God. We are so busy trying not to wreck our lives and wreck our loved ones' lives and wreck this world that we spin ourselves into absolute weariness, which demonstrates we've forgotten the gospel. He will not destroy. He will show mercy. He is steadfast in his promise to his people. He's one-sided and he's doing it all. And he's painted this sign in the sky for us to remember. Now, I keep saying this is the covenant for those who are his people. And the question is how, if we're not part of his people, can this covenant be ours? Perhaps days before Jesus sat with his friends with that new covenant offered in his blood, which we celebrate every morning, on his way to Jerusalem. In Matthew 11, Jesus said these words of invitation. These words to those who are broken and weary and desperately need to remember again who God is. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Are you weary? Do you know your relationship with God? Do you know what it means that he's made covenant with us? He has hung his bow in the cloud. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.